Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Today on the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast, we have Carl Latham. He's performed with artists such as the Shirelles, Johnny Winter, Bernie Worrell, the John Lee Quartet with Clark Terry, Slide Hampton, Cyrus Chestnut, John Faddis, Mark Egan, Tom Scott, and the Dizzy Gillespie alumni group, just to name a few. Carl has subbed on the Broadway productions of Bring It On, Hamilton, Beautiful, and my former show, Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations. Carl is an instructor at three New York area colleges and endorses Peisty cymbals, Yamaha drums, Evans drum heads, innovative percussion, and big fat snare. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My guest today is Carl Latham. Thank you for coming on my podcast. Man, it's a complete honor. Thank you. Glad to have you here. Now we're going to uh, talk about your amazing career. You've done so many different amazing things. I love your, your latest album, which was released sometime in the fall of 2021, correct? Yeah, that was a, um, that was a little trio CD I did with a bass player named Ryan Berg, who lives close to me, and a uh, really nice piano player, Alex Collins. We, we were doing live streams during, um, during the shutdown from my studio. Oh, wow. And I was going to do a compilation of what kind of, you know, your buddy Roger was here, Scudero, and like a lot of different guys came in. And that particular night, for some reason, was really cool. So we, we decided to release it. You know? Was that your second record that came out? That's, um, I kind of been releasing since the 90s. I released something called Dancing Spirits in maybe 99 which was with John Lee and Bobby Malik and Tommy Guarana, Mitch Stein, a bunch of guys like this. And then I had a record called Resonance, which was in 2007, where I, 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 I do a lot of the most of the music I do in the last few years, I'm covering like pop songs. I'm really into like doing rock songs as jazz to try to like bring that music to people who wouldn't listen to it. So that record has like a lot of Hendrix and Stevie Wonder and stuff like this. And then I did a record called, oh, a record I really love with uh, Mark Egan and um, Ryan Carno, where I covered all Bjork music oh, and wow. did it in the style of Bitches Brew. <laughs> and that got like some, we, we were in the BMW World Jazz Award. They picked six bands from around the world. We were the only band from North or South America. We played at the BMW headquarters. Very interesting recording, you know. And then I did one called Living Standards with Mark, which is like, uh, did I do Hendrix? No, I did a lot of Beatles I even did Lowrider, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff like this. And then the last, that last recording was like a jazz recording, which is kind of funny because that's a lot of people kind of know me as a jazz drummer. But most of the people that I work with in the U.S. don't know that I play that style at all, which is what I've been doing for 20, almost 30 years in Europe, which is kind of some freewheeling, you know, just anything goes, you know. Well, speaking of, you know, Hendrix and, and Miles Davis. What kind of music did you grow up listening to? Uh, very eclectic. Um, I have a brother who's 10 years older, whose name is Rick Latham, who's not the Rick Latham. <laughs> 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 the Rick Latham and I always chat about this because 
my brother, Rick Latham, who's 10 years older, he was a hobby drummer. So I started maybe when I was five or six, like he let me play on his, he had beautiful red sparkle slingerlands, you know, but he was really, he was a great drummer. It was like the really, um, a vibrant time. Like he was into, he played like, uh, like Mitch Mitchell's from Hendrix and, you know, they play, had a cover band where they played, they even opened for like Johnny Winter and a couple other bands. And, um, he was a great drummer in all those styles of like the, like the late sixties, you know? So that's kind of was the first stuff I started listening to. But then my mother, who had been a singer before uh, she got married, uh, there was a comedian named Ernie Kovacs was her manager. And uh, she always sang around the house. She was really religious. So we had a lot of like religious music in the house. Mm. And then my father was into like this bizarre stuff, like, like all over the map. Hendrix to Shostakovich to Stan Kenton to, you know. So I kind of grew up listening to everything really early, you know. Were your friends in junior high in high school into eclectic music as well? Or did oh, you Oh no, no, they were ready to kill me. Because <laughs> <laughs> by that point, the first band I saw live was Chicago. Um, I think maybe I was seven. And then I I was became I was a huge Mahavishnu fan. Like I was a Billy Cobham fanatic, fanatic, you know. And I went to Avery Fisher Hall expecting to see the band with Billy and Jan and all those guys. And Narada showed up and this like changed my <laughs> uh, life, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. yeah that's, I was like, Oh, what, what's this about? You know? So my poor friends, they'd be into like George Thorogood and the destroyers and, you know, super tram and all kind of, and I'd be playing Maha or return to forever or weather report. And they'd be like, shut that stuff off. What are you doing, man? <laughs> Where'd you grow up? I grew up in um, Western New Jersey, uh, a place called Freedon, which is barely on a map. It's near the Delaware Water Gap. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, for Route 80? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Weird scene because my, my, the rest of, I'm, I'm younger. My, uh, my oldest brother is 14 years older. So the rest of my family kind of grew up kind of urban in the Trenton area of New Jersey. Most of them don't even admit they grew up, any, they have any association where I, where I grew up. I worked on a farm as a kid. You know, I baled hay and stuff like this. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a trip. So we used to have a, uh, we had, you know, you had rabbit ears for TV and we used to be able to get WRVR. Do you know about that station? This was a very important station in New York, which played like the most broad eclectic mix of music possible. Yeah. If I grew up kind of country, I was, you know, I live in the country. I'm like, I'm kind of, kind of country. Did you listen to country and Western back, back then? Not back then, no. <laughs> no, no I, was, I was torturing my friends with like, you know, visions of the Emerald Beyond. <laughs> Vital transformation. Like, dude, you check this out. <laughs> I couldn't play in 4-4 my life depended on it. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, so you yeah, started yeah. out, did you like Genesis and, and stuff like that? Or was yeah. it more of the jazz fusion? I, I, well, I was like a, yeah, I loved Yes. <sighs> Fragile is my favorite record from them. Fragile. Yeah, I like quirky. I like I like like kind of quirky drummers. Like I I love how quirky Bill Bruford plays. You know, mm. it's I love him with and I loved him later with with uh, with um, King Crimson, the band with Adrian Ballou and yes. Tony Levin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you like that kind of stuff, I'm just curious. Is you know I have this thing called a tangent alert. This is not really a tangent <laughs> to a certain degree, but do you like bands like Tool? I like Tool. This is by that point. It's interesting because I came up really listening hardcore to fusion and probably where does my prog end off? My prog proggy stuff kind of ends off with, uh, with those musics. 
because there was a point in my career where I, I, I met a great bass player named John Lee. He runs, he was Dizzy Gillespie's last bass player. I knew him as a fusion musician with Jerry Brown. They had bands. Somehow he threw me totally into the straight ahead loop. There was a, and at, at that point in my career, I just kind of stopped listening to everything. Cause I was trying to get like, like go back and get like my straight ahead together, you know? Well, <laughs> I'm sure you probably listened to and liked Tony Williams lifetime Damn. records from the, the mid seventies, the believe it record. That's like Holy grail. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you when I first heard that, I was like, Holy shit. This is like the greatest thing I've heard since like ever. But you know, of course I, I've, then I realized that there's a whole bunch of those kind of things that are just great in all kinds of different music. But, uh, you, you, you stopped like progressing down the progressive uh, road and got into uh, straight ahead jazz. Were you into more stuff like Art Blakey and, uh, you know, yeah. Coltrane or, or were, I know you played with Ed Cherry too, right? Man, funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ed and John. Well, I met John. I played in, a, I started in, I had a day gig for a minute as a computer analyst. There's a whole early career that's totally wild. I was in a national drum battle in the 80s. Uh, I took second place out of 7,000 drummers. The guy to beat me is Sonny Emery. Oh, my God. It, really? like, it was a Carmen a Peace national drum battle. And I was working a day gig. And I, went, I took lessons with Gary Chester. And Gary Chester like hit me with a, with a like a lead pipe over the head in my first lesson. He was like, "What are you doing? Where you have a day gig?" You know, he took he took second place out of seven thousand. So wait, wait, let's go back. Let's go back before we get to that. <laughs> you were you grew up in Western New Jersey, Jersey yeah. and you did you play in a lot of bands in high school? I played started playing in bars when I was fifteen. Yeah. Were you but playing George Thorogood? <laughs> but we did play Dance of the Maya for one of for one of the uh, Battle of the Bands. <laughs> what was that? Was that uh, Return to Forever? No, that's Maha. That's um, from Intermounting Flame. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. We played so you, Blue Oyster Cult, Cities on Flame with Rock and Roll, <laughs> and and like what that James Brown song that was uh, not James Brown, the, the uh, James Gang song that was really popular at that Funk time. Forty nine. You got it. <laughs> and, and I made the guys play Dance of the Maya. So that, it kind of started there. And at the same time, I was doing classical. I was really into classical. I was into all state band as like a timpanist and as a snare drummer and was really into all those, you know, like Dele Clue and, and Cerrone and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So you did you wind up going to music school, music school right after high school or did you just go and start playing? I did. I went to Rutgers uh, my first year which um, I wanted to kind of stay close to home because I was kind of country and it was, and it was kind of close to New York. You take quick train in. And um, the first, when I went there, there was no, there's now there's a thing called Mason Grove School of the Arts where everything's under one umbrella. But when I went there, like I lived on the Livingston campus so I could be associated with the jazz ensemble, but the wind ensemble where I played timpani was on the Rutgers campus and the symphony, symphony was on the Douglas campus. And what's even nuttier is that each of those campuses had their own music departments. So if you took theory 101, they all used different textbooks. Oh, man. And they like competed like they would. I swear to God, they would schedule like the like the jazz ensemble concert at the same time as the wind ensemble concert, you know, or the. 
So I was there for a year and I had really had the privilege. It was, what was really cool about going there was I studied with Freddie Waits, if you know Freddie. And uh, Freddie, in those times, you, you didn't have to show up much as an, as an adjunct professor. <laughs> so Freddie was always on the road doing something. And do you remember Um Boom? He had this thing like with Max and with, uh, with Horace Arnold. He, man, Papa Joe came in one time as a sub to give us a lesson while we were oh, there. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I stayed there and it was cool. But at one point it was like, you know, I really want to get somewhere where it just didn't feel cohesive. You're taking buses to get like from one campus to the other. I mean, I spent hours on the bus every day, you know, taking classes. So I went to Berkeley after that, which I absolutely loved. It was like, like loved it there. And then I split Berkeley and went on the road. <laughs> now, why'd you like Berkeley better? Because less travel or you like the cur- curriculum better? Because uh, I was nuts. Because <laughs> I was one of those six or eight hour a day practice guys. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So you, we would, you could just, man, I lived in the same building that my, my dorm was where most of my classes were, where most of the meals were. I'm very good friends still to this day from uh, Jeff Tane Watts. We were really good buddies back then, you know, at Berkeley. And man, what I loved about it was you would shed like, you know, four hours or you had to have a special system because they would turn your ID over when your time was up after two hours. So you had to get to know the guy behind the desk and like work something out with him. So he would flip <laughs> you. Yeah. So man, I'd be literally, I would be in there like six or eight hours a day and you feel like you, like you had something together and the guy next to you would just like be eating you for breakfast. You know, that's wow. what I loved about it. There's so, it was so vibrant and so many, and it was really like a collective. There were, great drummers and everybody had a new, if somebody had a new idea. It was like, I'm like this damn COVID. It was like a virus. It spread <laughs> among like all the drummers, you know? So it was kind of cool. And I played in a lot of ensembles there. I was in seven ensembles, you know, it was, I was a good reader. I was a good player, you know, kind of had a lot of chops. So I, it was cool. I did, was in like Buddy Rich ensemble or I was in the pop recording ensemble, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but I split that to go on the road with a, with a Haitian band, a Compa direct band. Wow. And I got stranded in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, oh Haiti. Yeah. Holy but no smokes. plane ticket home, bro. That's, that's how I got out of the music business for a minute. Because my poor dad, he couldn't relate to me being in the music business. He, he grew up in the Great Depression, you know, picking coal off the railroad tracks. And he had a 43-year gigs with, with AT&T. So, like, I should have been a lawyer or a doctor or some one of those professions, you know. And uh, he made a deal with me. He was like, I'll get you and your drums out of Haiti if you'll go back to real school. Quote, unquote. So I yeah. studied, you can't picture, I went to Ohio University, which is where I got my degree from. Man, I studied like five computer languages. I studied three levels of economics. I studied two levels. I studied calculus out after not taking math for like four years, you know, what, three years. Did then I learn? took a day gig as a computer analyst. For That's where I met my wife. We're, we're still together. She's upstairs working from home remote. You know? Did you learn C++? This C++ <laughs> is before. I learned, oh man, the, the computers that I worked on, like I worked on one of the, I worked on mainframes mostly, but I was in the team where we worked on the first laptops, you know, the power that was in the laptop is probably like, like in your toaster now, you know, we were, we were trying to like get all kinds of stuff to, you, they had these things called Bernoulli drives, which looked like big pizzas, man. It was a, like a floppy disk in a, in a container and you'd shove it in. Some of the old consoles had those. Do you remember like the old, you ever see an old SSL? They used to write the automation to these crazy drives, man. 
and it was really like a big floppy disk that you just shoved in, you know. You went back to school because you got uh, stranded in Haiti, and your father's like, "All right." He said he'd pay for pay for your school, and he just- he, so he said he would pay to get me get me and my drums out of Haiti. And this is the type of stuff, bro. In those days, to make a telephone call from Haiti, this is 1981 or 82. 80, they had, you know, it was only cables under under water. You went in a room like the size of a gymnasium, and there were little phone booths, and you waited a couple hours until they called your name in French. Wow. <laughs> and then, and then it was like a five minute phone call. Do you want to come home or not? <laughs> you know. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, actually, it was a groove because I met people in Haiti where I, like, man, I, the manager ran off with the money and I lived with some Haitian people in their house. And it was wonderful. Not, man, nicest people in the world. I had a great time. And, you know, I, I was a freak then. You know, I would like, I was the guy to get on the back of the, uh, they, they had taxis, which were like pickup trucks. And I would sit on the back. I'd be the guy that would sit on the step on the back and they'd hold you in with your elbows, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was really, what was great about it was a real eye-opening experience to see how other ways of life are, you know? So you went to school for IT, started working for a company, then you were doing the day job thing, and then you started taking lessons with Gary Chester, and he was like, what are you doing, dude? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it was way worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's really? a documentary coming out and, and Gary's daughter was here with uh, Tony Cruz and they filmed it and it was really rude I, mean, I thought my career was over <laughs> Really? He just started screaming at me at the beginning of my first lesson yeah, yeah. What, what, what was he saying? Like he was encouraging, it, I mean, encouraging? Uh, How G-rated is this show? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got my ratings from the podcast association yet Yeah, because he... Uh, <laughs> We everything was going fine. What happened was one of my private students. I was like the hot shot guy in the part of Jersey. I was so my first teacher would send all of his students to me to like learn new things. You know things he didn't teach them. And one of my guys who he he does a lot of work. You might know this guy, Rich Colsar, very great drummer. And his wife is Denise Barbarita. They have a nice studio called Mona Lisa. And um, he went to Gary. And then he came like to just came over and, and, and I was aware of Gary because of Joel and because of Dave and Kenny and, you know, and um, he started playing it. He would get, you know, a third of the way down the page. I had no idea what he was playing anymore. You know, I don't know if you know anything about Gary's system, but he does all kinds of wild stuff where there's bass lines and you're singing the bass line. You're, you're playing melodies on top. And then you can, you and the next week you back, you invert, you play bass on snare, you call it, where now the bass part, you say, hey man, let's, when you get to the bridge, why don't you put the bass part in the snare drum? And now we're going to hit the kicks in the bass drum. And on top of this, you had to play everything ambidextrously and you had to sing all the different parts. So you go through the page, the page would be like a song, you play through the page and maybe you sing the melody, which would be in a bass drum one time. Then you come back the next time and you would sing the hi-hat part or you'd sing the click track part. And the, the goal was to have everything sound the same no matter what you sang, because you play the bass drum, you play the bass, you sing the bass drum, you play the bass drum louder, you know? But, so the student went to him and I was like, whoa, what's going on there? And little bit notes to me, he had told Gary everything about my life. So I went to my first lesson. Gary just messed with me. He was like, you know, I don't teach on Saturdays, but, you know, I'll let you in. And I had like three weddings that weekend. I had a day gig and I was teaching. So I go over and everything's cool. And we're sitting there. 
and uh, everything's fine. And out of blue, he just goes, wait, you took second place out of 7,000 drummers in a, in a national drum battle and you're working a day gig? I was like, yeah, he goes, what, what's the matter with you, right? So, you're in the head, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> okay. And he goes, and you're still dating your high school sweetheart? <laughs> He said, why don't you just have 14 babies to sell those drums? You don't deserve to be a drummer. Wow. And it was funny because, man, within six months, the girlfriend was gone. And a year and a half later, I became a pro. It was him. Like, really? He was one of those cats. He wasn't just a drum teacher. He knew people. You know, he could read people. That's why I was, man, that's why I was like, he's that East Coast Hal Blaine, you know? He played on all those recordings and he knew he wasn't just a great drummer. He, he was, he was like a drum guru. His card, I think said drum guru, you know? So tell the listeners about his method and his book and his story. So that, cause I know that you're doing something now. Gary was uh, probably the most important drummer in the New York recording scene in the period. Um, he said there would be like a limo waiting out in front of the studio to take him to the next studio. They, it would be like that. He's on everything. I don't know if you know his, his track record, but he's like, like you just go down the list, just locomotion to like, I'm a believer to Brown eyed girl to into still tonight to Mr. Bassman to, to, you know, uh, um, the Shirelles who I work with now, uh, will you still love me tomorrow? It's just like, it's kind of, uh, he was, man, he was Burt Bacharach's drummer. Wow, like all the he's Burt Bacharach. They they they're making they made a documentary about Gary that's going to come out. Burt Bacharach on tape said the session. Picture this: the session didn't happen if Gary wasn't available. It's kind of heavy, you know. Yeah. So he he what happened was the what the way he explained it to me, which which was that whenever he had a challenging part that he had to work out, he kind of like wrote it down and had little slips of paper and he kind of put shoved them in a shoebox or in the closet and years later tried to figure out how to how to make a method out of it so the first book which i really didn't study much of the first book with him i mean i studied a little bit of it but i was all i was a pro drummer but you know when i went to study i was i was like playing all the time he has systems which are basically groove systems and then there are pages of reading which are melodies and you, you play the groove and you read the melody at all different tempos. And he had this weird knack where sometimes you could play something like light speed, like ambidextrously leading with your left hand. So he would put the metronome at like 40, you know, <laughs> or the next time he would put it up to like 120. It was like wild, wild stuff. I'll never forget in one lesson. And I really had my stuff cold with him. I felt like the time was tugging, like something's going on with the time. I looked over and there he was with this evil grin on his face. He'd been doing this with the metronome, like over two minutes, like maybe went up like, like five clicks, you know, but he was a great teacher. He was a great drummer. Um, uh, very influential. He taught, he taught Dave Weckl. He taught Joe Rosenblatt. He taught Kenny Aronoff. He taught Danny Gottlieb. He taught Max uh, Weinberg. Uh, Tico Torres is really into him. Van Romaine. Uh, you just go, it's like, Everybody in a certain time period that was in New York, you know, went and took lessons with Gary. Fascinating, man. Important cat. I, 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 man, I would not, I would be probably retired in like, like Key West now <laughs> if it hadn't been for Gary. <laughs> and I don't have any regrets. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, he's the reason why, why I became a professional drummer. 
Gary Chester. Learn something new every day, man. I, I you know, I, I didn't know this about him. So I need oh. to. Yeah, I didn't know any of this stuff. I'll gift you a Gary Chester book. We can trade. I want one of those Broadway drumming one-on-one shirts. Yes. Everybody <laughs> needs to get one of these. I'm talking <laughs> about. Soon to be released. I, I'm Gray, black, blue, red, turquoise. Not turquoise. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> For the ladies out there. So when you took that, start taking lessons with Gary Chester, he was like reprimanding you for working a day job when you had so much talent and you won this contest. Tell me about this contest that you were in. Um, totally another random situation. Uh, I was going to Ohio University. I was playing tennis with some friends and they were like, you know, there's this national drum battle. What? I should preface. I left school with 12 credits left because I was doing every gig. I wasn't going to class, man. My, my professors were coming to see me play in the bars and in the clubs and the concert halls. You know, I had every gig like in central Ohio and West Virginia and blah, 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 forever. But there was this, uh, we were playing tennis and the one friend was like, you know, there's a drum battle up in Columbus, which is about an hour and a half away. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 500 people, I guess, per city submitted tapes. It was Carmen and Pieces National Drum Battle. It's a really cool thing. And he went from city to city with like with uh, Sandy Gennaro or the drummer from Heart, and they judged, you know. My friends like like just stormed into the place and we we're like, my, our drummers, my friends, the best drummer, blah, 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 blah. So some guy, I guess, got sick and they got me in. And I won the preliminary night out there. And then I went back and won the second night out there. And we had a couple months to shed and they flew us to all. It was my first time to LA, you know. And we, I, we stayed at the Gateway Sheridan, man. I remember this. But the drum battle, it was the beginning of MTV. I'm still trying to find it. It was in Griffith Park. And all those drummers were there. Like, uh, who else? Uh, I'm trying to think of the whole list. Uh, they got Bunny Carlos, um, Carmen Apiece, his brother Vinny, all, all these drummers. You know, like, they were all the judges. So they held the LA final before us. And then they had, there were 15 cities total. And I was the winner for Columbus, Ohio. So then those guys played and then the winner from LA joined us. And then we all played a three minute drum solo. And that was it. There was like just cold three minute drum solo. And I took second and the drummer to beat me is Sonny Emery. I don't know if you know Sonny. Yeah, he was a freak then too. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that was, it was kind of cool. They gave us, I think I got a Mattel Synsonics drum set. I don't know what that was. <laughs> Synsonics. <laughs> That's what it was. It was a Carmen of Peace, Synsonics, Mattel Synsonics National Drum Battle or something like this. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. It was cute. Man. It was cute. So after you did the drum battle, did you, and you said that six months later you left the, the, the day job thing, did you say, you know what, I'm just going to do this professionally and just make some money from this and move on. I, what happened was I did, I, I did. Yeah. I was kind of like, I was set cause I was doing really well in my day gig and I was just going to play like hobby, you know, until Gary hit me with a stick. I was like, I mean, I had a lot of gigs and I was teaching and, you know, and I was working with a guy. What kind of happened was a, a guy, but Gary pushed me and, you know, didn't push me, just influenced me in that direction. I worked with a guy who got a record deal on RCA, a guy named Charlie Elgart. And it's funny because one of the uh, people you uh, interviewed, who's a lot, kind of a lifetime friend, Gary Seligson, I think he was playing with Gary or they, he, Charlie. Charlie got a deal on RCA 
I put in time to record. We recorded the House of Music, really nice studio in Jersey. And uh, right before the recording, my boss was like, you know, uh, we have this big project and you can't take off that weekend. <laughs> I was like, well, wait, you know, like I had this in the books for like two months. You know? <laughs> and I went home to my wife and my wife was like, we'll figure it out. Quit. <laughs> wow. That's great. And that was that. And the, do, you know who, do you know Gary Foote at all, the bass player? Gary and I are lifetime friends since then. I've heard of him. But I don't. I don't know him personally. Gary played with Billy Cobham. Even Gary played uh, with Blood, Sweat, and Tears for decades, and now Smokey Robinson for a long time. But Gary and I became best friends. So I kind of left. Like that was it. Did one recording at my weddings and stuff like this. But what Gary hooked me up with was there was a thing called Rock Video International, RVI, Daishi Kosho. And it was somewhere in Hell's Kitchen when it really was Hell's Kitchen. Guys would be shooting up after the in the middle of the night after the sessions. You and, mean like um, now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just keep your eyes open. You know, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. And um, <laughs> Gary got me on these. Uh, Gary got me. They were. It was the beginning of karaoke tracks. So they had three twenty-four tracks Sony PCM studios going like twenty-four-seven. So I was. I worked for Gary, who was one of the producers. I think the first song I recorded the karaoke and it was really trippy we would record like everything into the fairlight you'd sample the drums and you play everything back from a pad system but i'd see everybody up there sandy Gennaro, chuck Berge, that plays with billy joel forever like sometimes they rehire like the original rhythm section to play on the stuff but i was pretty good and pretty quick so i was i worked for gary and then i started working for i was like the cleanup guy for any of the tracks that you know, the producers just didn't want to do like who knew there were two different drummers on islands in the stream. You know, I don't know what happened there, but there's two drummers on it. So you completely recreated a track. So I had like the super solid karaoke account for a long time. And I was doing club dates and then work with Charlie. And what happened was there's a thing. There was a radio station called CD 101.9. And CD 101.9 was kind of a big deal. And, and this guy, Charlie Elgart, was like the darling of CD 101.9. And I'd walk into like Walmart. I'd walk into anywhere. He'd be on, I'd hear myself, you know. They had a thing called the CD 101.9 Fantasy Band. And it was, it was great. It was Noel Pointer. It was Cornell Dupree. It was, um, who else was, man, because I was really friendly with Noel. Uh, sometimes Larry Coriel. Uh, Deborah Henson Conant, the harp player. I'm trying to think, but, but Dave Valentine, man, this is very important. And uh, the promoter, the, whoever was supposed to do it, it was like some high level drummer, like the day before said, I can't make it. And the promoter remembered me from playing with Charlie Elgart. So he threw me into, I was the only Indian with all these chiefs, man. And the first show I did, man, do you know who Dave Valentine was, a great flute player? Man. Little did I know he went to high school of music and art as a drummer, not as a flute player, you know, mm. and we played and I was, I had studied like, like Robbie Amin and, you know, like kind of real fusion, -y, a lot of ch ch roots together in Afro-Cuban man in the middle of the show, he started yelling at me. He said, don't you have a stick? <laughs> I'm playing like some furious while one He unscrewed the cowbell on the bass drum and started playing the rhythm that he wanted to hear in my face. Mm. And we, we finished this, this, this set and I kind of was like, yeah, what's up with that brother? And um, he said, why don't you come over to my house? You know, he lived in a, you know, the South Bronx, Hunts Point kind of, he had all the tapes from like Cuba, like, like on beta or whatever, like, like, you know, Munichitos and all this. And he's like, no, you're a pretty good little drummer. Why don't you come over? 
So that was kind of the beginning of how I was like a fusion guy. And that's kind of how I started getting into world rhythms, getting into jazz. And, and I didn't play with John Lee on that one. Victor Bailey played the first one. But the second one, John Lee and I, you know, John played with Dizzy Gillespie forever. And I knew him as a kid from like when he played with Larry Coryell and he had these great records with Jerry Brown. And um, John and I played together on a New Year's Eve. We loved each other. Coryell was on that one. And then uh, he said, what are you doing for breakfast tomorrow? I said, well, nothing. He said, well, why don't my wife and I come over and we'll have brunch? We had brunch and we became lifelong friends. He's the witness at my wedding, he and his wife. I still just, you know, I talked to him kind of every week. I just was in Savannah with him. We're, we're still playing his groups. And that was like basically how I started getting into jazz. You know? And you started working. Did you do a lot of touring after I that? Did, or? Yeah, I did you know, fantasy band for a while. And I was you know, mucking around in the New York area doing all like, you know, 300 gigs a year, weddings and, you know, freelance and bars and et cetera, et cetera. And um, there was uh, Alphonse Muson canceled on a tour and John saw a spot and he put me in on my first tour in Europe with uh, the great Bobby Malik. And there's a Dutch piano player named Jasper Van Hoof and man, one of my idols, Michael Urbaniak. And um, it was my first first big tour. And it was crazy. You know, it's like, man, thrown into the fire again, you know, kind of like seven on Broadway, you know, <laughs> just roll out there and here you, here you go get them, you know? So that started and that kind of gave me a little bit of a stamp of approval because these were kind of heavy hitters in the European market. So I started working with a vibe player from Augsburg that I worked with. Uh, he's, he's a great vibe player and composer. Um, worked with him from 1993 we may do something still, but man, I did his tours like six months a year. I'd be in Europe for, for 10 years, back and forth and back and forth. And then I started working with another artist in Germany. Uh, so it was just like, that was kind of what, that was quite, you, I saw who was in an interview that was it Gary Seligson that said that Gary Chester told him never to leave town. Yes. 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 Yeah, I know all about that because mm. when I was touring, there was one point where people actually asked me if I had moved to Europe. Wow. And man, if you're gone that much, they do that. It doesn't matter how loyal they are. You're, they start with L and they move right to M. <laughs> you know. It's true. It's the out of sight, out of mind. Thing is yep. now, it's, it's a little different now where you can, you know, contact someone on social media and just stay in contact. But then again, if you're still out, you're not there if someone needs you next week. Yeah, you're not available. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's you and I talked about that. That's why I wanted to like stop being on the road. I wanted to be home. You know, how did we connect? We met just because um, I was subbing over at beautiful for Clint again. Okay. And I'm very good friends with Lynn Shankle and Joe Moat. Yes. Great. We people. lived in the same town for a while. And Joe and I are like buddy, buddy, buddies. And I love Lynn and Joe. And, uh, they had always spoken so highly of you and I had never met you, you know, uh, they're like, Oh, you're going to love Clayton. When you meet Clayton, you and Clayton are just going to hit off. You're going to love Clayton. You're gonna love Clayton. And I was like, yeah, I, people told me the same thing about Joe. They were like, I hadn't met Joe and Joe walked into my house unannounced. I had a Christmas party. I never met him. He walked up the stairs and he pointed, he doesn't remember this, but he poked me in the chest. And he just goes, I'm Joe Moat. <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of became lifelong friends, but everybody had kind of been talking about you. And they gave 
somehow we had free tickets. Some they said, oh, we have there's free tickets to the previews or the last the closed rehearsals of Ain't Too Proud. And I know Seth really well. Seth and I go back, yeah, you know, Seth Farber and I go back 20 or 30 years. And um Rick had been on beautiful uh Roger Squatero, I know 20 or 30 years. Uh and um I was like, man, everybody was like, man, this show's pretty cool. So I went over and I think maybe I texted you during the show. And I was like, yeah, of course you sounded, you know, as you sound. And um, the show was great. And, and that's how we first met. And then I think maybe you invited me down just like to see it. And man, I loved you. You were super cool and you played great. And, uh, and then we started talking about stuff. And I think that's how we met, you know? Yeah. I mean, now that I, I just remember, you watching the show and you were telling me how you wanted to get off the road and stay in town more and subbing on shows and eventually having your own show is definitely the way to do that. Cause it's, it's a way to earn money and to be able to do other things. But you know, I'm very, very, very uh, happy that, you know, usually when people have shows, it's not, very easy to have someone come in to sub because especially if you don't know them and don't know how they play but let me just just say this publicly and i've said this before when people come in to sub at my show uh and i watch them play i can tell within like two measures if they're able to play the show and then when i heard you play the way you do the things you do you, 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 I start out with this simple fill and then you start the swing shuffle groove. And I was like, okay, this guy gets it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't really have to hear very much else. Cause I just know that, you know, the music, you know, the style, and obviously you can play your ass off. So it was very easy for me to say, all right, go ahead and, you know, do what you need to do. Come in and, and, and you're going to sub tomorrow. <laughs> it wasn't that bad it wasn't that bad <laughs> no but this you, you have no idea how grateful i was yeah i'm very I'm very grateful it was because we talked about that and that's about your strength knowing your strengths you know yes and yes. that's i love the way you play and you and i see time very similarly and i think we have a lot of similar influences somehow you know so it was like it just made sense. As soon as I started to play along with you, you know, and you're like the best guy. I don't want to say the best guy because I also, I, I, Clint again is like my dear friend. And oh, I yeah. love Clint. He's a great drummer and he made it so easy to suffer him. Um, your method is so beautiful. You, you must have subbed a lot. Yes. yes. Yeah. Because you make it so easy. You send, you know, with the conductor tape and with the, the two different audios. I had like audio of, of house and I had audio of just drum track separated. And, you know, then you can sit home, you can study and dissect, you go measure by measure. And that's, that's what I did. You probably saw him of kind of an extensive note taker, <laughs> but man, <laughs> I knew where every open hi-hat was and every, you know, I just, I, I kind of sussed to see what things you did every time, every feel I, man, I stick this stuff the same way you did. Very you important. Know, I was playing your sticks. I, I bought those groove sickles when I first studied with you. Well, speaking of that, you know, thank you for connecting me to Innovative Percussion. You came in and you laid me some sticks, laid some sticks in my hands. I was like, whoa, these are yeah. great, man. They're, I, I was with Vic Firth at the time. And then I tried these Innovative Percussion sticks and they just felt really good. I tried different ones over some period of time and they took me on as an endorser and 
thank you very much. I appreciate that. It was my great pleasure. <laughs> going back to uh, you being the star among the jazz world and doing European tours and playing with all kinds of people, and you're like, you know what? Time for a transition. What did you do to uh, connect to people on Broadway? And what was the first show that you subbed on? Well, I reached out to a lot of people I knew. And I, 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 let me just, I know you asked a question, not what to do. It's just, I'm, I still feel like I'm a rookie. I'll tell you the one thing never to do is never let the words come out of your mouth. I don't think I want to play on Broadway because <laughs> I did that very early in my career. And that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> so what I did later was I reached out to some of those guys who, who had kind of said to me, hey, man, would you like to take a look at my show? I'd be, you know, I'm on the road. I'm busy. You know, I don't know if I have time to do it, which I probably should have just said, yes, please. You know, um, I reached out to a bunch of guys I knew and a drummer named Brian Dougherty, who he was like, played with a lot of great guys. And he and I know each other again, like Darius Seligson. I know each other since high school. Um, Ryan was working on the Twyla Tharp, Bob Dylan show. Was and this called? was uh, the times they are changing, maybe. Okay. And I had never played on Broadway. And I hadn't played in the pit, man, since, man, since my junior year in high school or something, you know. <clears throat> so, and I was on, going on tour all the time. So I observed him a couple of times. I went out, took the book. I was, the poor guy's in a van, you know, listening to the music and I had charts and I'm marking, you know, I came home and shedded. And this, I mean, this was just like a, a anomaly. Well, it's not really an anomaly, but I came home. When did the show close? The week of my first night. <laughs> oh, so I never got to play the show. Really? And I, yeah. And I was kind of like, you know, I want to do Broadway, but boy, that was a lot of work. And, it was a lot of work, you know, so I kind of like hung around and I got was still was then I was touring a lot. And I think I scored this. This I had a big band gig for three years that happened every week. I was on tour and I teach. I was teaching two colleges and a lot of private students. So that's all I did. And finally, uh, I'm friends with Andres Ferrell, who's the great drummer that plays on Hamilton. And he we knew each other in the early 90s, man. And I'll never forget, I was standing at an IAJE conference with John Lee and Jerry Brown and one of my favorite drummers in Dugu, and I think Peter Erskine. And Andres rolled up. It's like, well, he was called Patrick then. He rolled, it's like, hey, I'm Patrick Farrell. And blah, 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 blah. I hear you know John Lee. Well, I played with Paquito. And blah. It's like, okay. And we kind of really hit it off. And I didn't see him, man, for whatever that was. Like, whenever In the Heights came out, at least 10 years and I never went to the NAMM show. And I, you know, I had endorsements forever. My wife kept going, you're going to have a great time. Go to the NAMM show. You're going to love the NAMM show. All your friends are there. So I went to the NAMM show. And who rolls up on me? And I used to have long hair, man. I had the hair like, like the middle of my back. Yeah. And I wore a duster down to my ankles and little blue John Lennon glasses. What? <laughs> yeah, I was like a freak. And Andres was diff looked different too. He's a little heavier. And I think he had longer hair to... We're standing on a, they used to have an autograph line for Yamaha drummers um, at the, uh, just, it was beautiful. Like the, the, the lowly guys like me would be on the same table with like a Dave Weckl or a Jerry Brown or a Sonny Emery or like, like my idols. I'm one year standing next to Dave. I've, I think I was sandwiched that year between Antonio Sanchez, uh, Jerry Murata, Andres and myself, you know, and we're, we're standing there. He's looking at me. 
he's like, wait, you're Carl Latham? And I looked at him and I'm like, wait, wait, you're conscious you're for you know? So we reunited then. We kind of hung out and he kept trying to get me to do In the Heights. And I looked at In the Heights a bunch of times. I met Lynn and uh, man, a lot of allies in that pit. Uh, Joe Bergamini uh, was helping me out. But in the end, there was uh, so much conducting stuff going on. And as we know, you are trusting me with your book. I'm your employee, man. You know, so I took made like the even as much as I and I could, I knew I could play the show, but as much as as I really wanted to play the show because it was great and it was like super challenging and cool, I just didn't feel comfortable enough to go in and play it. So I just said like, nope, this is not the show for me to like cut my teeth on Broadway. Yeah, I don't did. Did you see the pit? Did you go in? There was a lot of stuff going on over there. Yeah. And a lot of conducting. So I kind of didn't do Broadway for a while. Then I didn't do it for a minute. And then he scored a show called Bring It On. Mm. Yeah. Do you remember that for a second? I just, I've heard of it. I didn't see it or don't know. Yeah. And Lynn and all those guys were involved in it. And Andres is like, Andres is, has, can play a lot. <laughs> He's got a lot of stuff going on. You know, he plays every damn instrument. He's like a great guitar player. He's a great bass player. He plays, he plays damn percussion. He's one of those super freak guys, you know? And um, that kit had four snare drums, I think, in electronics. Like Hamilton has five snare drums in electronics. And uh, that was the first show I subbed on. And he like, was like, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And it was great. Uh, Carl Carter um, was the bass player. I'm sure you I love Carl. All those guys were so kind, man. And I walked in. I'll never forget this. Joe Bergamini is, we're, we're kind of bros for life, but he was bro bros for life because he came to pick up his check and the conductor didn't know it was my first time playing a show. <laughs> and it was like a Saturday, like, you know, like a bad day or something. And Joe knocked on the door and I was in there by myself, you know, getting it together. He came up behind me. I didn't even see him. He gave me a big hug and he goes, you got this, bro. You know? Oh, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was great. All the cats pulled, you know, and I did it. Like, I got through my first show. The cats gave me a little standing ovation. And it was like, and then you do it. It's like that. You kind of, it, unfortunately, that show closed pretty soon. Mm. Yeah. So then I kind of went back to touring again. And then Andres uh, called me for Hamilton right away when Hamilton came. When I saw Hamilton in the public and, um, Lynn, Lynn was cool. And one of those freak life interventions, I stepped into my house to just like go check my oil or you know, check the salt in my water softener or something. I stepped on a flight of stairs and the entire stairwell fell off the wall. And I used to be like, a, I used to skydive. So, bro, I'm holding on to the bulkhead, listening to my rotator cuff, just shredding, just going... <laughs> And below me is the whole set of stairs. So I'm like, well, how am I, either I'm going to break my ankles or I'm going to break my wrists. So I did like a, like a parachuting roll, you know? And it was funny because I had, a, I had a, a ladder in the basement. And fortunately, and my wife was at work because she's like, if you ever go in the basement by yourself again, I'll kill you. <laughs> and um, I shot my arm up over the hair, my hand, my shoulder, see if I could do anything with it. And I found the ladder and I got to the top of the stairs that was the last time my arm went above my shoulder for like three months, you know? Oh, yeah. So I kind of missed like the first wave of Hamilton, you know, 
So then he kept saying, like, why don't you come in? Why don't you, why don't you come in? Why don't you come in? Why don't you come in? And I did it. I, 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 I don't know if I did 10 maybe over. I did like a year of it. And um, i never forget the first show over there. It felt like skydiving, you know, because it was still like maybe in the first year of it. There was that super buzz, you know, like there'd be some chic would be in the audience or some, you know, dignitary or whatever, blah, blah, or some movie star. And it felt, it felt like I heard of elephants over your head, like, or a swarm of bees. You could feel the energy, you know? And um, it was one of those things where I did really well on my first show and I kind of did well, but I never, it was a confidence thing. I think I never quite felt like I had it, you know? And I know you know how that can be. Like, I think everybody may have their show like that. You know, I, I think I was so um, grateful that Andres threw me in loop over there. I mean, the cats were great. They were pulling for me, you know, but I never myself like felt like I had it, had it, you know, I had that little question in the back of my mind. There's a lot of stuff going on in that show. You know, there's five snare drums. The click track is starting and stopping all the time. You, uh, you have, keep putting a splash cymbal underneath one of the uh, under the piccolo drum on weights. I'll never forget the first show. Man, I was playing with the hip hop groups. I was hitting the splash cymbal so hard I inverted the bell. So, like, I'm trying to get the splash cymbal back on the little stain it went on, and they're counting off the next song. And I swung my foot around. There were electronics too, you know. So I swung my foot around to hit like the the electronic drums or the acoustic drums. I hit the electronics, and nothing came out. So then the next downbeat came and I hit like everything. It was one of the uh, reprises in it where the first time you play like the howitzers of uh, four measures in a row and it's like a decrescendo. And then the second time you only hit like triple F the first time. And then after that, I think maybe there might not even be anything. And I'll never forget uh, Dinklage. Like we finished the show because I hit the first one and I, I, I was like, I missed it. So I had like slammed the second one. And then I started slamming the third one. And then I started looking at the page. And I'm like, wait, there's rests up there. <laughs> oh, man. And, and he came over to me and he said, uh, he said, man, we all could hear you through the walls. I got this. I know. I know. I don't got this. I don't got this. <laughs> he said, not only do I love the way you play, I love the way you own your mistakes. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like fired like four howitzers I didn't mean to do, you know, in the middle of Hamilton. But it was a great show. It was and for me it was a great experience because it's it's um man, it's so challenging. And I kind of was like 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 hitting my head against the wall all the time, like getting there, but not really feeling like I ever got it, you know. And Clint, years before Clint Gannon, who's like a bro, bro, bro. I love Clint and he's made People don't know who Clint Gannon is. Uh, they need to like get their wiki out because Clint is like one of the most important drummers in New York for the last 30 years, you know, and uh, Clint's a super mensch. And I called him up on a Saturday, you know, I said, you know, do you need any subs? And he had said in the beginning, you know, if, when you get done with that Hamilton nonsense, why don't you give me a ring? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I called him up. He's like, oh yeah, yeah. I don't need any subs, bro. But you know, what are you doing tomorrow? Which this is advice. I can't, I can't give a lot of advice on what to do and what not to do, but this is one of the things I can definitely give you advice is you say nothing. Why? <laughs> and he said, uh, why don't you come down and watch? And I went down and watched and we had a long talk after the talk that you and I, you mentioned about, you know, getting off the road. He said, Carl, do you really want to do musical theater? You know, this is a commitment to do musical theater. 
And I said, yeah, I get it. And uh, we talked probably for an hour or something. And he had me come back on a Tuesday, gave me the book. I watched a couple times on the next Sunday. I watched once to see him again and once to watch the conductor. Man, I think he threw me in on like the next Tuesday. Like like 10 days or something, you know, like old school. Now what show was this? Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And I did, I, I made a, I think maybe I got three notes on my first show over there. And, um, you know, every, as you know, like most of the pits, everybody's cool. They're pulling for you. You know, everybody's the bass players are to Jeff, Jeff, uh, Jeff, um, you know, what I'm talking about, I can see his face. He's a, he rides bicycles. Uh, he, he played on, um, on a too proud. Jeff, ah, he was helping me out. And, everybody, and they all pulled for you. Seth was there and blah, 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 blah. But that's the show where I really got my show together because I figured it out. Cause I, you know, I only work with like the same conductor before I worked with a couple different conductors at Hamilton, which was challenging, but mostly the same conductor. But that's where I really got to see like three or four different conducting styles and, you know, and, and, and see how the dynamics of a show change depending on who's, if there's a lead, who's the lead and who's not the lead. And, you know, they, they, the lead changed there a few times, you know, like I remember when Vanessa Carlton came in, she did something exactly opposite, like, like a, where there was a retard the, on the, in the, the other version, she accelerated. And I'll never forget because I kind of had my head down a little bit. The conductor was like, can't you even watch me? <laughs> <laughs> but that's how you learn it. I, I learned over there. I, I think I did a couple of years. Clint, Clint, Clint. And that's a beautiful thing. Clint takes off a lot because Clint is like a, so in demand. And Clint was very equitable. He just sent it out. And like, you know, who's available? And you take three here. You take three there. You take three there. And that was, I finally got like my Broadway thing, my show together, you know? And so I felt that's when I came in to do your show. I felt confident enough because I kind of knew the system of learning a show by then, you know, that, that, that's what's so important is, and you mentioned it with some of the other guys learning your system of learning a show. Yeah. yeah. I, I just listen all you guys. I watch, you cats are masters. So everybody, I watched the way people go to use the bathroom you know, or to use the, the band room. Like, you know, if that, that show had like a nice little band room, but man, when all the regulars were there, I didn't take one of the seats. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's like any other thing. You just when you when you're working with master cats are all master. Ray Marchica, this is a master. Gary Selickson, masters at this craft. You know, and great people and great drummers, but masters of this very intense thing. You know, it's just yeah. And everybody t- talks about how you see. I'm getting like all excited. <laughs> everybody talks about how man I can play in front of forty thousand people like we're having this conversation on a big stage, but. Man, you go in there, you're naked when you're in a booth and you're all by yourself. You know, they, they, they count that first song off and you've been playing along with Clayton Craddock for like a month. And all of a sudden there's no more Clayton Craddock. <laughs> I, my story of my first sh- subbing uh, experience on Broadway was at Rent. Now, I, I was doing off-Broadway stuff before, but my because I had done Tick, Tick, Boom off-Broadway and my name got around and Jeff Potter was the drummer at Rent. And, of course, Rent and Tick to Boom were connected through Jonathan Larson. Uh, I just remember saying to myself, because, again, you're playing along with Jeff Potter. And then you're there in the seat. And there's people out in the audience. You're in the hot seat. I said to myself, if I can just get through 
that that initial drum fill. Basically, it's like, and the power goes out. Two, three, two, plop, and then you start the song. And if, if I could just get myself to the first measure, I'd say everything else would be fine. And it was. But you have to have the, first of all, you have to have the confidence that you can do this. But you also have to make sure that you're in tune with the conductor. But you have to internalize everything that you've learned and make it such a part of you because the drummer that you're listening to and practicing along to is no longer there. And you are in the driver's seat. It's like, you know, being on the passenger side of a vehicle and watching somebody drive. But then they're like, all right, it's your turn now. Then you got to get the thing. You got to drive. You're like, oh, snap. And the thing you get, you got to start out like at 100 miles an hour. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The pressure's on. You got to hold that steering wheel and make sure you drive down that, you know, uh, the the obstacle course and make sure you get to the end without crashing. (laughs) Yeah. I measure, I do like, like, like measure by measure. I go like, okay, if I play, if I can play the next four measures, it's going to be cool. <laughs> okay. If the next four measures are exactly. cool, it's going to be cool. Yeah. Measure 16. Like, oh my God, I got another 500 to go, but. <laughs> well, this was, that's a Hamilton experience because there's 50 songs over there. Damn. And I'll never forget. There was a tacit somewhere late in the show. And I just wrote on the chart, breathe. <laughs> because there was some big drum stuff that came up late in the show. There was like uh, one of those crazy Andres things where you're just doing this crazy sweep and you're double stopping. And it only happens for four measures, but it's something, it's like learning a new rudiment. Mm. It, you will never play this anywhere else in life, but you have to play it exact, you know? Yes. Like you're, st- you, you play so clear and, I use this crazy software called Wreck and Share. Have you seen it? I think you told me about that a couple of years. Yeah, it ago. links up with 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 the Yamaha EAD. So I would, t- and that was a cool thing because I use the EAD now for the last few shows, where I have your sounds in my headphones. So it's not like a big surprise when you go in and all of a sudden, like, man, the drums are massive now. That that oh, that's what I always found was kind of surprising. That I don't know. Uh, what what Clint and I talked about this a lot. What what's what's I mean, prep 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 prep. You can't over you can't over prepare. If this is like a broadcast for I mean, all of our drummer friends, we already know this. But for people that are have an interest in Broadway, you cannot over prepare. And this will it doesn't matter if you never do a show ever. This is going to help you in every other facet of your playing. You know, but you just prep you prep you prep it. Like I always say, you have to know like the feel you did. You had to know that, Phil, at the end of I'm losing you. If somebody hits you with a sledgehammer when you needed to execute that, Phil, it still comes out. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's like you have brain fizzles. I don't know if you do, but man, you'd be in the middle of the show to be like, <sighs> you know, the one that killed me in, the, in your show the first time I played it was the, the was that naked hi-hat part in... um. It man, in uh, uh confusion. Pop, no, Papa, Papa is a rolling stone. We're just going, but man, when that bass drum comes in and out, it's life or death, kind of. And it's you know, honestly, it's a simple part, but you have to do it right in the context of the show. Again, the hi hat thing is it's you're just playing eighth notes, but you know, there are. There are reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing and it, and it matters for the, the people up on stage above us. 
It matters for the lights, it matters for the sound, it matters for the context of the music and the story that's being t- told. Again, it's simple, but it, it everything that I do and every everything that anyone does in a show matters. We're, we're painting a bigger picture and we're part of the color that, that is being uh, used. So you have to look at it, you know, you're an essential ingredient and in all that stuff, but I'd say we're... Did, did you did you talk about I, I saw you know maybe four or five interviews did you talked about it, that a lot in the other interviews or, or did you because that's what they need to know is man like my the only note I got on on uh bring it on the first time and that had like you walk out of there with with like sweat in your shoes you played so hard it was all like like drum chords you know you played pretty strong and uh there was a cymbal roll I missed I came in just a little bit early. Well, not until I saw the show, the symbol rolls time with the sunrise on the stage. <laughs> it's a lighting cue. Man, the things that you think are important, it's a whole nother thing than just playing with a group. Or for me, learning, because I play with, I've played with a lot of singer and songwriters. Um, you're in charge down there. That's a fine balance. The conductor's in charge, clearly. I mean, the conductor is always right, uh, you know, 110% of the time. But you have to play with the authority that you're in charge that's and, correct. Or, and play in whatever, like that's what I'm talking about. And that simple little eighth hat part, you got to play it with the same conviction that you played it with. What do you think is the most important thing that anyone who's interested in doing what we do, what, what do you think is the most important thing that they should know to become a success at it? You have to know every nuance of the show and you have to, you have to be invisible so that when the show ends, you know, like your lead turned around and gave me the two thumbs up when we were on stage, he didn't know there was a sub down there. That's the whole point is, is that you can't possibly know everything that's going on. Just do what you do, you know, and, and really know you have to know you can't Prep, prep, prep. You cannot over-prepare. You can't have your head buried in the music. I'm staring down the conductor. I'll tell you what's important, what I find important as a, as a newbie. Knowing the spaces between the songs. That's kind of the first thing I do now is write down in my conductor video where the markings are of the timeline. Because otherwise, you're sitting there like a deer in the headlight waiting for the next downbeat to come every time you're playing a show the first time. You play a show a couple times, yeah, you know how to flow, you know. But otherwise, make it easy for yourself. And what makes it easy for yourself is over-preparing, you know. Man, I, I prepped so hard. You can't picture how, I, I mean, all of us do. We all talk about it. You just prep, 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 prep. Have respect for the book. Have res- Understand that this person is trusting you with their book. You know, it's your job, man. And I, I want to make you look good. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I'm, I remember watching some of the things that you had post, posted on social media when you were coming back in after our COVID break in order to sub for me again. And you were like, man, I'm, I'm in rehearsal. I'm, I'm just getting ready to go in to, to play a show. And you were like saying the, the whole week, you were like, I, you know, I don't know exactly what you were saying, but it was like, you know, I'm going in. Don't bother me. I'm, I'm going in and learning this show again. I'm like, man, he is really going and getting ready to suffer me again. I mean, that's like it's it was just nice to see. And it's just it, it obviously paid off. And unfortunately, I only had you in 
once or twice or three yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, you tried. <laughs> the last time was once. This last time, yeah, 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 yeah. It felt good though. I had a good show, so it felt good. <laughs> yeah, you, you killed it again, and you know everyone, you know, likes what you do and all that stuff paid off. I just unfortunately, I wish I could have you in a lot more, but. Oh man, I'm sure it's so grateful. It, it'll happen again. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, all that preparation, all that stuff matters. And uh it it I remember subbing for Buddy Williams at um uh, the uh, at Motown. <laughs> and uh one of the players in the pit came to say goodbye to Buddy. He's like, Hey buddy, I'll see you. He's like, Oh my god, I didn't even realize you were here. And he's talking to ah. me. I was like, man, that's that's all I need to know. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, if I can sound like Buddy, I'm, I'm cool because that dude is no joke. Oh man, Buddy's an idol. But this is the same for everybody. It doesn't it doesn't matter what book you're subbing on? You know? Yes. Like you have to so to, to, to sub on beautiful man. I, I had to like like distill like some I, some drummers add stuff as they go to the parts I'm saying. You know, I'm sure it's based on, like you're saying, lighting cues or choreography, you know, things changing. Clint distills his part, man. Clint, Clint stuff is it's just like pristine. It's, uh, it's elegant is the best way to describe it. He doesn't play a note that's not necessary over there. Mm. You know, everything he plays in the part has a has. I mean, like everybody, every damn note has meaning. If you're just playing like two and four on the tambourine, that's very important, you know. But whatever it is, you have to emulate that guy. Like Clint and I are totally different personality types. You know, Clint, Clint's like real. Every, the people describe Clint as the way he plays is it feels like he's never been anxious. Mm. Yeah, which that's pretty important. You know, it's like he's got all those people up there, you know, and that requires like coming back a little bit, you know. We're like playing on other shows, like when I played on Bring It On, like just because from anecdotally from my personal experiences, it was called Bring It On. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there was literally water in my shoes when I finished the show. You were playing like that. And your show, what I loved about playing for you, man, you play perfect on it. You just play right, your time thing is right down the middle. There's no negotiating. You just, you know, you just, Play what you play and play with the click track. I said to George before the first George came over, he was like, You, you got, I said, Yeah, you just you laid like the bass part down, like it's like a four lane highway. And whenever I'm in doubt, I'm just gonna put the bass drum in the middle of that. Mm. Yes, and he's like, He's like, Oh, yeah, you, you understand. <laughs> yes, that's so yeah. true. But not all shows shows have different things like strengths and weaknesses. I don't know how I would do in like a traditional, a real traditional Broadway show, Broadway show. I, I could try it, but that would be a totally new experience for me. Like a lot of conducting and like I'm meant to play with clicks and you know, stuff like this, whereas there's like immense amounts of conducting and, you know, movement. And I don't know. It would, that would be a, that would be a brand new challenge for me. Yeah, I, I had those kind of experiences. I guess if you can call it Evita and Cats traditional musicals, but you know, it's Andrew Lloyd Webber, so it's really over the past 20, 30 years. But in any event, subbing for Bill Lanham at mm. Evita, I was like, this is so different from anything that I ever did, even in Cats. You know, the, the, the latest version of it. When the conductor, 
and people that are watching this, when the conductor does their their downbeat, and if it's it's done in a way where their hands are in a, like a slow motion, it comes up, and you don't know where <laughs> to hit. <sighs> I would I'd be more inclined to go and hit at the bottom of their conducting Me too. Uh, yep. wand, but some people, it's like halfway through the bottom and the top. Wow! And, and you know, watching Dave Roth hit the first note, and he, for some reason, they know how to play together in that orchestral uh, format. And right, it's not, much it's not more orchestral. Like, yeah, it's not like you're playing with you know a classic R and B group or a rock group. It's like one, two, three, four, and you hit the downbeat. You know, like, <laughs> like with James Brown, it's on the one. This is like on the one and a half. <laughs> Exactly. Play it on the one yeah. and a half, my brother. Oh man, yeah, this would be a challenge for me. But you know, you you adapt and you you learn and you figure out what the the language is. Unfortunately, with just like you and Ain't Too Proud, you learn all this stuff and then the show closes with same thing with Evita. I remember, you know, my third show in, I was like, yeah, I got this. And I remember the uh, conductor leaning over to the 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 orchestra, she was saying something and they were like, oh, and I heard like six weeks. I'm like, wait a minute, what are you guys talking about? And I'm looking around like they're closing in six weeks. I'm like, I learned all this stuff. So, but any, in any event, but that led me to work with Bill Lanham in Cats. So you never know where things are going to, uh, yeah. to wind up. But in, in any event, enough about me. I want to ask you, you have the Peisty Symbol sounds and gongs T-shirt on right now. <laughs> you use Peisty symbols, and you and I both use Yamaha drums, which I see in the background to your right. Oh yeah. And you use innovative drumsticks. Tell me right. why you use Peisty and why you use Yamaha, and you use Remo or Evans. Tell me about uh, Evans. Piece. Evans, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me why you use what you use. Um, because I'm kind of a believer. Um. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to diss anybody else, but I, I honestly believe they make the best symbols. Because <laughs> I, I, I was like, like an evangelist when I went to the factory in Switzerland. Like I didn't quite get it when I first signed with them. I was with Sabian for maybe 10 years or something like this. And my great friend, Kim Plainfield, pulled me over to Peisty. And uh, I'll never forget, because I, I was in Europe all the time. So I went to the factory and they have a wall and they just said, look, any, cause you know how like uh, when you go to, when I used to go to Sabian warehouse, you'd find a ride somebody you like, then you'd pull like 10 of those and you'd find one of those 10 that you really like. Then you pull a set of hi-hats and see which pair, which, which, which make. And then within those, which of those 10 do you like that matches that ride, et cetera. Peisty was a totally different concept. They were like, dude, any sound that you can hear in your head is on that wall. And the whole idea is you pick and choose from that sound palette. And then if you break one, you send your wife to get the replacement. Because <laughs> they all sound the same. This is kind of before traditionals and before masters, which is the stuff I play. But mm. they make such great symbols and they have unbelievable quality control. And man, I play a lot of different styles of music. You know, so it's like they make great jazz symbols. They make great symbols to record with. Like signature line is ridiculous to record with. I think best crash in the world is a 17-inch fast crash uh, feisty. 
Mm. You can't picture. There's a, there's, if you want to hear his Pisces symbols on a recording where you just go like, uh, there's the Andy Snitzer recording I played on called Traveler. Man, the crash symbols go like, <laughs> it's, it's you know, like, 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 like a little, like a firework, You're like every time. And, um, so that's spicy. And I love their sounds and they're great people. And I just love them. They're, they're like my people. I'm buddies with the family and et cetera. Uh, Yamaha, I waited for Yamaha because I was like, kind of like had stuff going on early. And um, I, uh, I think Pearl looked at me and it's funny because I think whoever the sonar rep was, it was Honor Sonar. I had sonar drums when I was a kid and uh, I sold them off to get my first set of Yamahas. And somehow somebody was trying to coordinate with me with them, but is, who would know that my bulk of my career would be in Europe, in Germany, of course, where Yamaha would send me drums and then we'd have to lug these drums around because we traveled jazz tours by van. And the guys in the band hated me because every venue we'd roll in, there'd be sonar drums. Mm. <laughs> I'd be like, no, I got to play the Yamahas. You know? But Yamaha, I love because um, I waited for those drums. And when I came in, I was playing, do you remember the original recording customs? Yeah, I had a cherry set of those, you know, like typical, you know, massive drum set, three or four across the top and a couple on the bottom and hanging toms, et cetera. And they just, man, they sound incredible. And I kind of got into their maple drums later. So by mistake, they sent me a maple kit. And that kind of changed my life because I don't, I think I only have maple drums here now. The thing I'm waiting on is the Crosstown hardware. Do you know about that? It weighs 18 pounds. Oh, yeah. The, the, the really light. Uh, yeah. $400. Set, yep, yep, it's aluminum. Man, it weighs like wait, like they're big. I have a couple of the big high end hi hats here. The whole damn bag weighs like the same weight as, as like a hi hat stand. Yeah, I know. A friend of mine has those and he told me about them. And yeah, that's great, they're great, right? So that's past Yamaha, and then Evans. Uh, the story that goes like this with the uh, Evans and Sabian. I, as, as I said, I was like a classical freak when I was a kid. And I, my parents would let me stay up late to watch Vic Firth on great performances with like rabbit ears. And I watched him through the snow and I played timpani and all state band, all this stuff. And uh, Vic Firth personally signed me. And I'll never forget. It was like, it was like blew my mind, you know, like talking to Vic and Vic was like, Oh, do you have a symbol endorsement? I'm like, no. He said, Oh, what about Sabian? I was like, yeah, sure. He said, okay, you're endorsed with them now. I said, well, what about, he said, do you have a head endorsement? I said, no. He said, what about Evans? Do you like Evans? I said, sure, because I was the Steve Gadd, you know, freak. <laughs> he was using my hydraulic things. And it was like, yeah, yeah, now you're with Evans. So he called the guys, and I was signed with three companies in like a day. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. But then I, I left I left Sabian. Sabian was great, and they made great product. And Andy Silgen's a bro. I love him. He's like in, in ice hockey. I'm in ice hockey. Uh, but when I went to Pisces, it was like a home. I found a home. That's like a home for me. Like, you know, I helped develop like uh, dark energy symbols. I was on like the development team with them. And, and I, I love the family. I get along great with Eric and Kelly. And uh, no, I just, I just, I can't say enough great stuff about their product. Um, and then I went to Innovative because my good buddy, Rich uh, Mangiacaro, who was at Pisces forever, he kind of was like, bro, he kept pulling me by both arms. And man, I swear, Joe Testa, he's probably, he's probably going to like put my head on a, on a, on a pole someday. <laughs> not that I matter that I'm not in there, but Joe, I had a great relationship with Joe because he was my Yamaha guy forever. 
And Rich kept going, man, why don't you come over to Innovative? They're great sticks. They're great sticks. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I don't have really any drum set guys. He's like, nah, why don't you come over to Innovative? Why don't you come over to Innovative? And finally, like, I, 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 you know, Joe and I had a great relationship. I, I never forget. I said Joe like a, a te- of like Joe, and Joe, super heavy hitter in our industry. You no, know? like he was in there in the beginning of drum videos and everything. And I was like, you know, and I love Joe. I was like, man, it's so great to work with you. It's such an honor, a privilege, blah, 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 blah. And I'm really sad that I'm, you know, but I have, I'm going, I have to follow Rich to Innovative. They make great sticks and Rich is my bro. And we're, Rich and I are like bro bros. Like, like, you know, like, 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 like I love Clint. And, uh, I said him and he chose me back like a one sentence email. Carl, I am so sad to read this. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> but innovative makes great stuff. As you know, innovative makes a great product. You know, it's, it's, um, and no, I didn't quite understand like their focus is more drum core and really classical guys. You know, like I'm involved with Percussive Arts Society now. Like I'm on a Percussive Arts Society Education Committee. To them, like to some of the guys inside there, the fact that I'm an innovative guy is a big deal. Which in our in our drum set public, they don't like innovative. What's innovative? As you know, they make great sticks, but they're really well known for their mallets and for like all the marching stuff. You know, it's yeah. And I and I actually have my like the like uh, what I, I'm a studio geek the last bunch of years. I, I own the house of the former uh, the former home of a great bass player Mark Egan who's in the original Pat Metheny group. Like, and what I'm really geeked out about is like studio gear now. It's from being in Europe for years, I work with this company. It's called RME. And they make like amazing converters. Uh, they introduced me to a ribbon mic company called AEA. And I'm like a ribbon mic fanatic. Like I have a, a pile of ribbon mics here. I really like love ribbon mics. And I work with them. Oh, I work with Radial. Radio makes direct boxes and stuff like this. And they're great people. And they, um, they turned me on to some other, I work with a few, and, I, and I'm and i very good friends with the guys at Alto Music. So I kind of, kind of like a, I don't know if I'm really an endorsee, but I kind of am of Avantone. They make uh, great speakers and mics and, you know, all kinds of stuff like this. Yeah, but that my my drum geek, my like geeking out. When I go to an AM show, I, sp- I say hello to all my buddies in Drumland. And then I spend like the whole next three days over in Geekland over here and this stuff. You know? Yeah, my second time to Nam was in January of 2020. First time was like I don't know, 15 years before that. But you know, being older and and kind of understanding a little bit more, I just wanted to experience Nam, and it was amazing. I first of all, I love the weather in Southern California. Yep. And I like the experience of just seeing so many different manufacturers and so many different clinics and so many different people were out there and you just turn around, you run into somebody that you might know. And, and uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny that, you know, the drums and percussion are maybe in one section, it's really loud, <laughs> <laughs> but then you go to a different floor and you see all that other stuff. And I don't know all the studio stuff yet. Eventually I like to move to a place where I have my own house uh, I have my own studio and set up my own gear, but have my own podcast studio. But this is fine right you now. Rocking it, man! <laughs> we'll do but, a little tour. We'll have to do a Nam hang. We'll do. I'll take you through a tour over there in, in like Geekland, the Studio Geekland. 
Yes, I, I, I'd like to go when it's winter, though, and not uh, the summer one. I know the summer one's coming up, but I'd rather go to California when it's cold. Is the summer one, I didn't check, is it going to be Nashville or is it, is it it's still going to be there? I don't, you know, I don't even know. I don't really pay attention because I just, I'm. You want to go to winter and get me in L.A.? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, hey, we'll see what happens, you know. I'm, I'm in no rush to, to do anything right now. Uh, what projects are you working on right now? Do uh, other than the the latest thing that you recorded with your your is it a trio or quartet? that was a trio? Yep, um, I have a long standing project that's that probably will be the next release. Um, it started with a project with John Hart and Mark Egan, and then John now is the head of the guitar department at the University of Miami at Frost. So he left us and the great Vic Joris played with us, but Vic passed away. Um, and Mark is kind of like North and South. Today's Mark's birthday. Big shout out to Mark Egan and Steve Jordan's birthday. One of my favorite drummers. Oh, wow. They give each other a birthday call every year, I think. And um, the next project I have a pro- the project is called living standards where I record like pop music. And the next bunch of songs are like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. And there is a King Crimson in there. There's Layla's in the pile as like a fast jazz swing to like a gospel at the end. And that project, do you know Rachel Z, the piano player? She's, play, she's playing in the, in the current version. And a great guitar player named Mitch Stein. And this young bass player, man, I love Jonathan Toscano. And I, Rachel and Omar are married, uh, Omar Hakim one of my absolute favorite drummers, you know, people, they, they kind of said, why don't you try Jonathan? You know, it's so they're lending me him and Jonathan is ridiculous. Great, great young bass player. So that's probably the next recording project. Um, I have another project with a great sax player named Don Braden. I don't know if you know Don he played with Winton. He played, he was in, he like replaced Branford when Branford went to Sting's band. And, uh, he, He's like a, he's kind of like a, like one of the, not no longer a young lion. He's one of the super heavy hitting, like post bop sax players. So we have a band called Big Funk. We have a CD that's in the can, but I think the next thing that's probably going to come out will be the next version of Living Standards. And uh, Alex Collins and I are going to do another CD. Uh, we're probably, we're, we're in a bass player float at the minute. Um, just like scheduling. We're trying to figure out which is the right guy. But yeah, that, that's probably, that's, that's, plus I record all the time. Like as soon as we get off this call, I'm going to be recording. I'm record. I recorded 50 or 60 cues for a music library. Do you know Mark Berman? Keyboard player. He used to be in Broadway all the time. He's, he's, he plays on Mrs. Maisel as like her music director. He's the piano player. And uh, Mark and Michael Carlotto, which is you know how small our world is. Michael Carlotto, Carlotto was Dave Weckl. Joel Rosenblatt and Paul Adamy's college roommate. Oh, wow. Michael does a lot of gaming music. He's a great guitar player. He played with CeeLo Green. He does a lot of, lot of armies. He plays with all those gospel chops guys. And um, he's developing a music library. And I've been playing on a lot of stuff for him. I played on something that we thought it went live and it did. And it was a, a national Walmart campaign where I recreated a Wilson Pickett tune. So I just record, I have a couple tracks for him to do today. And I have another, I just played on a jazz guitar player CD. I can't talk about where I replaced the drummer. And, uh, it took about a week <laughs> for a producer out in Denver. And, oh, and what I'm really doing is getting prepping for colleges. 
because I teach at three colleges in Jersey. I teach at True University and I teach at County College of Morris and at a state county college and a really diverse spectrum of students. So what I'm doing now is I'm creating a set of, um, I created like a pamphlet books and I'm creating YouTube videos because I have a fear that we may be going in and out for the rest of the semester, maybe remote or in person. So I want to do what I want to have is like the entire sequence of like four semesters worth of material as little snippet lessons, just in case we don't get to see each other for a couple of weeks, you know? So kind of like you're doing with the podcast. This is like, this is the job I'm doing now. So I, do you know what OBS is? Have you figured out OBS? I, to, to something cool maybe people might want to look at. During shutdown, just to remain sane, I created this thing called Concerts in the Cabin. Like John Lee came to play here with Freddie Hendricks, uh, who plays like plays in the Dizzy Band. He plays the, the, the all the solos. Uh, Roger Squitero came up. Uh, Martin Pizzarelli, uh, Bucky Pizzarelli's son. All kinds of people came through, and I learned how to live stream from the house with like webcams. And I learned how to do like four different cameras. Like you learned the podcast, and I learned how to switch the cameras while I'd be drumming. Like if it was basal, I'd reach over to my iPad and put it on the bass. Or there's a thing like in Facebook called Concerts from the Cabin. And that's kind of the next stuff is I'm, I'm using those resources. I learned OBS and some other things to make these. Uh, what do people need to do if they want to be in this business? They need to keep churning. Do you know what I mean? Churning, you have, churning you have to have intellectual curiosity. It just, you know, if, if you think you got it at some point in time, I think that's the kiss of death. You know, you just want to keep learning, learning your craft. And like, when there weren't gigs, I learned a bunch of other stuff. And I really jumped into my recording. And I jumped into Pro Tools. And I jumped into editing and blah, blah, blah. You know, just you have to keep moving all the time. I know so many young students have that perception of going directly from school to Broadway. And I wonder, is there anybody that like, successfully did it because how do you possibly know all these styles like really without going out and playing them unless they're, the, the ensembles are so great at the schools now i don't know how do you really know how to play like do the thing you do i i know i learned to play with the shirelles for 20 years that's how i learned <laughs> to do it like you know getting yelled at why are you doing that you know how many times people yelled at me on stage? Wow. How dare you play that symbol with a horn? John Fattis said to me one time, because <laughs> I went to a, I went to like, it's like Mark Egan's favorite ride symbol, a Peisty 602. Think of ECM. It is that sound. I mm. went to the flat ride and Fattis just turned around at me at the top of his lungs and said, how dare you? They added extra stuff in there. How dare you play that symbol with a horn? <laughs> I was like, wow. damn, that's how you, how do they figure that stuff out? Just going to college. That's, well, that's- again, when you sit behind a drum set that ain't too proud and you start playing and I'm like, no, you're not ready yet. Just like uh, Tommy Igo, I heard did to Carter before he started the sub. Not that he didn't know how to play other music, but when someone comes in and you're not ready to play the show because you don't sound like the drummer that's playing it. The reason why you might not either you're not really prepared. You didn't do the, the preparation that you needed to do in order to sub the show, but you probably didn't do the 20 years or 15 years or even five years of playing the music that inspired Elton John to write the music for that show. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so that's what I don't get. That's exactly, that's what I'm talking about. 
That's what I don't get. Is there a way to fill that gap in? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any really fast track to become anything. Right. Whether it's learning how to run that studio, studio equipment. You just don't, like myself, it's like if I sat behind that stuff, I wouldn't know what the hell's going on. Just like if someone is coming in and trying to play, you know, a show, you're going to be lost unless somebody gives you some mentoring and, and you put some time in. It's not going to That's the word. That's the word I notice. I use that word myself. That's funny you say that. Because, you know, I teach a lot. And I noticed that is missing in, in cats is the mentoring. Like, mm. like, you know, they all that man, they, they can all play like the latest Vinny Caliuta. Like, I mean, God bless them. I can't. Right. But, neither uh, can I. <laughs> you know, but they didn't get mentored. They didn't figure stuff. What, what I find is like the older and older I get is what not to play. It's, it's much more important than what you can play. Right. You know, we all can play a bunch of stuff. I mean, I just assume if I, if I, if the guy that parks my car, I assume plays as good as I do you know, when I come <laughs> play your show. Right. I just, I'm like, oh yeah. Oh, you play drums. Oh, sure. You're probably a great drummer, you know, but it's what, what you need to like lose to play the right stuff. You know? Thank you, Carl Latham for being a part of my podcast. It was great talking to you. Learned so much about you and, and so much about what you've done in the past and so much about what you're going to be doing, especially with all that amazing equipment in back of you. <laughs> you are the next, uh, next Quincy Jones, uh, <laughs> Ted Templeman. <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> anyway, man, nice seeing you, and uh, we will definitely be in touch very, very soon. Yay. So great to see you, man. And I wish you all the best. Love you. You're a great cat. And it was such an honor to sub for you. And even more importantly, to become friends with you. Best, best to you. Thank you, man. See you soon. See you. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton-Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. 
Thank you for listening.